may be seated. Well, again, welcome this morning. Glad that you have chosen to, to worship here in this place with us. My name is Nathan. Uh, I'm the campus pastor here at the Olathe campus of, of Christ Community. Uh, and let's just pray as we enter into this, um, this new series, this new uh, book, this little place called Habakkuk. Let's pray together. God, uh, we, um, God we, we need you. I need you in this moment. God, we long to hear from you. We long for you to be the one who speaks. And so, God, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear and hearts that are attentive to your change. And God, I pray that even as we approach um, a place of Scripture like this, God, I pray that we would come um, realizing together that what we, what we need more than answers uh, to life's pain and suffering, what we need more than answers, God, is your presence. And so we pray that you'd be with us. We pray this for the glory of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Okay, well, I am uh, I'm probably not going to win any, any parenting awards anytime soon. Um, there's a good, good chance of that. Uh, mostly because I, I just love messing with my kids. And, and I think out of love, right? And I, I mean, I think that's what it is. And I think that's how they, how they receive it. But I just, I love doing that. And, and you know, like, like most kids, my, my kids are always asking questions, which is awesome right? I mean, I love, I love that kids are, are like that. It's, it's awesome until it isn't, right? I mean, eventually it gets to a point where it's like, okay, all right. Or, or, or when they ask something, I just don't know the answer to. And who wants to admit that, right, to a five and seven-year-old? You know, dad, why, why is the sky blue? Well, I often at that point say something like, well, it's, you know, son, it's just one of those mysteries. Nobody knows. I don't know. Um, or I just make something up altogether, which, which actually just completely drives my wife crazy. Um, but my kids, I think they get it. I think they know that I'm just, I'm just having fun with them. But what I love about it is that a lot of their questions actually don't have answers. I mean, kids, I, I love that about you. I love, I love that you just, you haven't given up yet, right? You're, you're still willing to ask questions that we as adults, we so quickly just sort of, well, we've, we've learned to just avoid, to, to, to no longer want answers for them. I, I still remember, for example, my first conversation I had with my son David um, about the issue of justice in the world. He was maybe like four at the time. Um, and I, you know, I explained to him, David, life, life isn't fair. And I still remember so clearly how he refused to believe that. And honestly, he was outraged to find out that, that I believed it. And, and we all know, right? Life isn't fair. And yet I got to tell you, with, with all the you know, tenacity of a little four-year-old, I wish that I could believe otherwise. I mean, don't you? Do you, do you get what I'm saying? I, I, I wish that I could demand that it must be otherwise. I mean, just an example. I began this week uh, with coffee with a, a 34-year-old young uh, woman wife and mother dealing with cancer, just right in the middle of her chemo treatments. Life isn't fair. And I ended this week with, with close friends uh, losing yet another pregnancy. It's not fair. Or even as we, as we look beyond ourselves, right, in our own situations, look, look out into the world. I mean, what do you, what do you say to uh, believers in Iraq who are being forced out of their homeland or other places because they, they follow Jesus? What do, you, what do you say to them? Or what do you say to the millions who are affected by Ebola? 
What about war and starvation and disease and slavery? What do, what do we say? Life is anything but fair. I mean, just look at the range of human suffering. I mean, even, even just look at, at your own stuff, right? Whatever it is you're dealing with, whatever pain you've experienced or suffering that you will at some point encounter, I mean, think about that, that weight that you carry and then multiply that by the 7 billion people who live on planet Earth. I mean, isn't God better than this? We, we believe such great things about God, don't we? He is, he is good and he is powerful and he is loving and he is just. But look around. Even a four-year-old knows it's unfair for life to be so unfair. And it doesn't matter who you are. I mean, whether you lived 2,600 years ago in a place like Israel or today in Kansas City, whether you're four or 84, even, even whether you're a Christian or, or you're still sort of trying to figure out whether or not you even believe that God exists, no matter, no matter who you are, right, there comes a point in life when every one of us cries out, God, aren't you better than this? And before you gather the wood up to burn me at the stake for saying such things, look at Habakkuk. Because this morning we, we start this conversation with this prophet. It's just a short little book, three chapters. Um, in fact, good luck finding it. If you want to turn there, go ahead. You could spend your entire time this morning keep you busy while I'm talking, or maybe just, you know, don't be a hero, just look at the table of contents, okay? Uh, if you want to follow along, go, go to Habakkuk, because Habakkuk, let's, let's even just sort of set the stage here, kind of the, the cultural context and historically in which we find this book, because we're, we're starting this, we're three weeks here, so we need to know why he's writing, what are the situations in, in his world that's precipitating this, and, and so Habakkuk, he's an Israelite. It's one of God's people in in the Old Testament. Uh, And he's writing at a time of terrible upheaval. Just like the the prophet Jeremiah. Some of us might be a little bit more familiar with with Jeremiah. They both write about the destruction of God's people at the hands of the brutal Babylonians. And, And so that means what we're reading this morning happens right around 600 BC, give or take. So this is still a long ways before Jesus comes, and yet is nearing the end of the Old Testament. God's people at this point, in their history, they've blown it. I mean, it's kind of shocking, actually, how much they've blown it. In fact, their, their last king, uh, Josiah, right, the last king up to, the, up to this point, uh, he, he was like the, the good king. He was like their final hope, and yet he was killed in battle against the Egyptians in 609. And so now his son is on the throne, Jehoiakim. And he uh, is really nothing, nothing more than a puppet of, of Pharaoh Necho uh, of, the, of the Egyptians. But even, even if he wasn't, Jehoiakim is corrupt, he's power-hungry, ruthless, self-absorbed, and the final nail in the coffin for God's people. If you think our politics are messy. Jehoiakim, he murdered the innocent, enslaved the poor, oppressed God's prophets, allowed the priests to abuse their power. 
I mean, the people of Israel, God's people, had so far turned from Yahweh, the, the Yahweh, the true God, that, I mean, they abandoned him, even, even to the point at this part in their history to practicing child sacrifice. They couldn't have gone much farther away from God than they were at this point. And this is the context in which Habakkuk writes. And as we look at his words, really focusing on, on chapter one this morning, here in this, this place, we, um, we learn three hard lessons. Sometimes anger is the right response. Sometimes there are no satisfying answers. And sometimes the only thing we can do, the best thing we can do, is to wait. Sounds fun, right? So let's, let's jump in. Okay, so now when we get to Habakkuk itself, that's kind of the historical time frame. Uh, Habakkuk is, is written as a, an intimate conversation between God and his prophet, and his prophet is angry. And so we, we heard the first four verses a moment ago. Lindsay read them for us. That's Habakkuk's first complaint. So there's a complaint, and then God responds, and then Habakkuk complains again. That's what we're looking at this morning. And since we already heard it, let me just basically paraphrase, right? That, that first complaint, Habakkuk says, how long, God? How, how long are, are you going to make me cry out to you and you ignore me? How long are you just going to sit on your hands as terrible things happen in our world? How, how long am I going to point out injustice and suffering to you and watch you, God, do nothing about it? The law is dead. Justice has been murdered. Your people, good people, are being oppressed by the wicked. God, aren't you better than this? When are you going to do something about it? And aren't, you, aren't you a little shocked that words like that are in the Bible? I mean, I am, as you think about it, right? I mean, it's shocking. And yet sometimes anger is the right response. I mean, no matter what you think about the Bible, and we all come with different sort of preconceptions about what the Bible is and different backgrounds and all of that, but no matter what you think about it, you've got to give it this. It's honest. It's raw. It is anything but pie in the sky. And if you don't believe me, read Habakkuk or Lamentations or Jeremiah or most of the Psalms or Job or even, even the words of Jesus in the garden or hanging on the cross. The Bible doesn't pull any punches, even when those punches are directed at God. And think about it. I mean, every, every religion, every worldview has to answer the question of suffering. Right? I mean, we all do. Every, every person, well, not just of why suffering exists, but why we even call it suffering, why it hurts us so deeply when things go terribly, right? Or why we can even call them terrible, right? Every, every worldview, every religion has to, to answer that. And, and according to this story, right, the story that we together gather around, it's because God created a perfect world, a world in which none of these things belong. Suffering, injustice, sin, pain, none of it belonged here, and yet we rebelled against God, we broke everything, and as the result of our treason, the, the, the consequences, right, the, the collateral damage is absolutely pervasive. And so the world we now live in, because of the fall, is not fair. But that still leaves a ton of questions, doesn't it? I mean, I mean honestly, I... I think it's the most satisfying of all the explanations of, of suffering and pain and sin in our world. I think it's the most satisfying. 
in the midst of a lot of really unsatisfying options, but it's still not very satisfying, is it? I mean, the scriptures never, never give us a systematic framework for understanding why bad things happen. The writers of scripture simply assume that we live on a planet that's been spoiled by sin. And that as a result, we're going to feel it. And it's going to hurt us deeply. Does it give us all the answers we long for? Not, not even close. But what is so unique about the Bible is that it gives us the language to be able to voice our complaints. What other holy book or worldview allows for and even even encourages, even demonstrates such incredible honesty? I mean, think about it. People accuse God of a lot of things. Maybe you've accused him in your situation of of, of various things. But I I would challenge you to come up with an accusation against God that you can't find someone in the Bible also accusing him of. And God lets it into his book. Because he knows. He knows how perplexing all of this is. He knows how deep our pain and our suffering goes. And and know that that doesn't make it easy when we suffer or we see injustice. But I do think it makes it a little bit less lonely. Because God may refuse to give you the answers you're looking for but he volunteers to be your punching bag if you take it to him. And sometimes anger is the right response. And so think about that. Think about your situation, whatever that looks like. Maybe, maybe uh, the situation of people you love, or maybe just look around the world, right? Are you getting angry? And if, if not, what, what's wrong with you? I mean, honestly, as you, as you look at this, so much tragedy, how long, God, how long are you going to allow thousands to die of Ebola? How long? God, how, how long will cancer claim so many in divorce and depression and starvation? God, God, aren't you better than this? Listen, God doesn't just permit our anger. He gives us the words to voice it. You see, you see God would rather you yell at him then ignore him. Besides, do you really think you could possibly be angrier than he is at the sin and the suffering that's invaded his world? And the biblical word for this is lament. It's where we get the name of the Old Testament book, Lamentations, right? Written by, by Jeremiah as a response to these things. It's a, it's a crying out to God, but we're, we're just not very good at lament, are we? I mean, especially in our culture, I, I, think we, I think we're afraid of it, right? Even passages like this in Habakkuk, we're, we don't like to go there. Other spots in, in Psalms or even some of Jesus' own agonizing words in the garden, they, they make us uncomfortable. And instead, I think we tend to go in one of two extremes rather than, rather than lamenting. On, on the one hand, we approach God as if faith means always smiling, don't we? You know, you got you to put on the right face. You've got to say the right things. You've got to spew out or swallow down the right cliches so that everything's okay. And, and so we, we, we squash our pain or we squash the pain of those around us. Or, or maybe even with this, maybe it's, maybe it's not that you're sort of Pollyanna about it. Maybe you, just, you live so tightly and complacently in your comfortable little Johnson County bubble that you don't even, you don't even see anything worth lamenting over. Listen, faith sometimes is outrage. Even even Jesus, 
lost it at the tomb of a friend, didn't he? Or on the other hand, we do get angry, but we leave God behind. And we just grow bitter, right? Or, or we, we assume that he's distant or he's powerless, that, he, that he's, he's left you alone. He, he doesn't care about your situation. Uh, lament, though, lament isn't whining about God. Lament is an honest pursuit of God in the midst of agony, directed to him in prayer. And he can handle it. I mean, he knows how you feel anyway. Why hide it? Faith isn't always smiling. But faith is always running to him. If you're looking, if you're looking for answers, I mean, the best place to bring your questions about God are to God. And sometimes, anger is the right response. Whew, that was heavy. Glad that's over with. Well, that was only the first four verses. It's about to get a lot worse. Because you've got to imagine in this, in this moment, okay, so Habakkuk, he's just laid it all out there, poured his heart out to this, this God that he believes in, that he, he trusts in, and God actually responds, which is amazing, right? Even think about that. What, what would that be like to, to actually have God respond to your complaints before him? God hears his agonizing word and he speaks. But look what he says. Yeah, uh, about that Habakkuk. I'm, I'm going to do something about the wicked in Israel. I will. But you're not going to like it. Look at verse 5. This is God speaking in response to Habakkuk's complaint. God says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Which sounds really awesome, doesn't it? Like, I hear those words, I'm like, yeah, I mean, Habakkuk's got to be on the edge of his seat, ready to hear the rest of it. This sounds awesome. God is going to do something big. He's going he's to come through. He's going to do it. And, I, and I, I love, too, I mean, how cool is it that while Habakkuk is focused on himself and on his people, God sees all nations. God, God sees every bit of it. But look what God says in verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, depending on your translation. It's the same, same people. And for the next few verses, God describes the Babylonians. He calls them bitter, hasty, dreaded, fearsome. He says that they, they take and they're taking over, that they, they make their own justice. Their horses are as fast as leopards and fierce as wolves. They come for violence. They gather prisoners like sand. They laugh at kings. They even laugh at the greatest fortress as if it's nothing. In verse 11, then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose might is their own God. Habakkuk, I'll take care of it. I'll judge the wicked in Israel. But I'm going to let Babylon do the heavy lifting. And the things that we know historically about the Babylonians, when they they come, they, they take everything. 
They rape and pillage. They were known to literally skin their victims alive, their captives. Man, I won't even tell you what they did to pregnant women. And they enjoyed it. And God says to Habakkuk, that's my solution to your problem. I mean, imagine what that must have been like for him. I mean, on the, on the one hand, I think, was he like, uh, never mind, I take it all back. Let's just forget I even brought it up. Uh, it's, not, it's bad, but it's not that bad. I mean, you almost think of it, but I don't, I don't think he could have even uttered those words. I think there was nothing but shock and outrage in that moment. To think, how, how could that possibly be? I mean, imagine if, if, if you heard those words about our people, right? Our, our community, our, 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 your family, this level of brutal destruction, or even, even on an individual way, right? I mean, almost be like going to God uh, with your back pain and God's answer being that you're dying of cancer. I mean, that, that's the kind of, of pain that this must have been for him. To be in this situation. And this is exactly what would happen to Jerusalem just eight years later. Habakkuk would watch as his nation, God's people, were brutally destroyed. And what could possibly make this okay for Habakkuk? Let me think about that in that moment. I mean, what, what could God have possibly have said in that moment that would, that would make Habakkuk say, oh, okay, I get it. Sometimes there are no satisfying answers. For reasons I know nothing about, God permits terrible things to happen that somehow accomplish his master plan. And I know some of you, hearing that makes you want to reject God even more. I can't blame you for that. I mean, you hear these things, you read these passages, you're like, man, I don't, I, don't know if I, I don't know if I'm in for this, right? And, and yet at the same time, how do you explain that outrage without God? I mean, for example... Um, this past week, well, last, last few weeks, I've been uh, reading a book by Philip Yancey on suffering about the, the nagging question of, of why. And I just was waiting for my, my kids uh, to get home on uh, Tuesday evening. I got home a little bit early. And, and so I was, I was reading through that, and he takes a chapter, and he recounts um, the terrible events at Sandy Hook Elementary. Remember that one? That's the one with all the first graders. And reading this, this chapter in, in detail, I mean, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I wept like it was brand new. Like, like it had just happened. And again, I felt, I felt sick with anger and wanted to cry out and did cry out there. God, why? How could, how could that happen? How could that possibly accomplish whatever it is? What, oh, where, where were you? And yet the only thing that explains the intensity of those emotions. We weren't made for this. We don't have a category within ourselves to be able to handle this kind of suffering and pain. That this, this world, we, don't, we don't belong in a world full of such pain and heartache. The only halfway satisfying answer or explanation that I can come with is that a good, up with is that a good God does exist. That he made us for so much more. And I don't understand most of what he does. Or at least it seems that way. 
And, and here, I think, is where we tend to get ourselves in a little bit of trouble, at least where, where I do, and I think maybe even Habakkuk here. Because we, we expect some answer to actually satisfy us, don't we? And so Habakkuk, right, he, he brings this question, God, how long? But if, and God answers, it's cool. But if you thought he was mad before, I mean, now look how Habakkuk responds in, in verse, verse 13, responding to, to God's answer to his, to his problem. God's, or Habakkuk says, God, you, you are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? What are you thinking, God? Aren't you better than this? Think about that. What answer would actually satisfy? I mean, what, what answer would actually make it okay for Habakkuk? Or, or for you? Maybe, maybe think of, of suffering and injustice, maybe, particularly like the big stuff, right? Sandy Hook, Katrina, Ebola, 9-11, the death of a spouse, chronic depression, infertility. I know we want answers. Of course we do, and understandably, we, we take those questions to, to God, just like Habakkuk does here, but what, what could God say that would make it okay? What could he, what could he possibly come up with that would, that would make it okay? I don't, I don't think the question why ever really has a good answer. Imagine, you know, on a, on a personal level, imagine losing a child. I mean, I picked that because I can't, I can't hardly think of anything worse. If there's anything I'm afraid of, it's that. But imagine if that was your situation. And so like, like everybody else, right, you, at some point, you take that to God and you say, why? Where were you? How did you, what? Why, God? But imagine if he actually answered you. What could he possibly say that would make it Okay. Well, Nathan, it was the only way that you'd learn to trust me. Okay, I guess. Or, or somebody would, would come to, to faith in Jesus as a result of this, this tragedy, or, or I would get a lot of glory at the funeral. I mean, maybe I'm just particularly unspiritual, but I, I think about that, and I'm like, really, God, that's the best you can come up with? You're God, and that's the best way you can achieve those things? It's through that, that level of pain? Friends, I am convinced that sometimes there are no satisfying answers. Not, not this side of heaven. And I don't, I don't say that to, to, to maybe imply that I don't think God's in charge or anything, any of that. I think, I think absolutely he is in charge. He knows what's going on. He is never caught off guard by the events in your life or in our world. He is never surprised. Everything that happens, God is somehow mysteriously orchestrating. And I absolutely believe that. That's, that's what this book teaches. And yet sometimes there's just, there's just no satisfying answers. And, and with that, don't assume that you know the answers. I think we do that with, with people, don't we? Especially those who are really hurting, because we don't we don't know what to say, and honestly, we we tend to say things that make ourselves feel better rather than them, and so we'll, we'll come up with some cliche or some offhanded comment like, you know, it's it's going to be okay. When honestly, you don't know that it's going to be okay. 
People say, well, all things, all things happen for a reason. We'll quote scripture, right? God, God works all things together for good. And those, those are true things. I, I believe that, and yet it can feel like a slap in the face to the person who is deeply hurting. I mean, if God's answers can sometimes be so unsatisfying, don't pretend your answers will have it all figured out. We need to come to people willing, willing to weep with those who weep, willing to, to question and to, and to struggle with them. Nicholas Wolterstorff, actually, I'll, I'll get to that, I'll get to that in, a, in a moment here. But let, me, let me go back to Habakkuk. Because um, what Habakkuk needs more than answers, what he needs more than an explanation is the presence of God. I'm convinced by that, and particularly as we continue to study this book, that's, that's what he needs. An, an answer is not going to fix it for him. He needs God. He needs to know that God is still with him. And but you see how he actually addresses God in verse 12? Look at this. this is the, these are the first words out of his mouth after he hears the, what God is going to do, right? God's plan. Twice he refers to him as Lord, right? That's the, the, that's the intimate or personal name for God. It's Yahweh in the Hebrew. Anytime you see Lord, all caps, it's, it's that intimate personal name. He refers to him as his rock, right? The, the one worth building a life on, right? Foundation, sure, and trustworthy. He says, my God, my Holy One. Instead of distancing himself from this God, I love that Habakkuk, he nestles closer. I mean, even in the midst of, of so many questions, I mean, faith is sticking with God, even, in, even when you don't like the answers, even if you get no answers. Nicholas Wolterstorff, in his book, Lament for a Son, uh, he writes after the death of, of his son in a tragic accident, he, he concludes that what we need more than answers from God is simply the affirmation of God's presence. To believe that he's still there. That he hasn't walked away. That he, that he loves us and continues to pursue us. Which is why I think one of the best things that you can do when you're hurting or when you're with hurting people is simply to cry with them. To, to be that presence for them. And, and when we're hurting, we, we tend to isolate ourselves, right? But that's sometimes it can be the worst thing that we can do. Because we can experience, even in small ways, when we weep together, when we question together, when we wrestle together, even, even as we wrestle with God, we can experience his presence together, to believe together that God is better than this. And so Habakkuk, he's done all that. He's made his case. He's expressed his outrage and his grief, so what next? Maybe easy to run off at this point, wouldn't it? Just say, I'm, I'm out, God. We're done. Or, or even to just go look for answers elsewhere, right? And who could blame him? But look how he ends his complaint in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And he waits. Honestly, sometimes the best thing you can do, sometimes the only thing you can do is to wait. And I hate saying that because I, I hate waiting. And I, and I hate saying that because I know that it means for some of you, and for those, for some who suffer, and even some of you here, that that means you're going to spend your entire life waiting. That for some of us, whatever it is you've been praying for, whatever you've been hoping for, counting on, planning that somehow, someday, some way, God would show up, for some of us, we will, we will never stop waiting. Not, not, not this side of heaven. But what else can we do? Who or what are you waiting for? 
Because reality is if you're waiting for answers, you could wait forever and not even like the answers when you get them. And if, if you're waiting for somebody to fix everything, I mean, maybe even God, right? Just come, God, and just, just fix it all. And, and believe me, we, we, we want to pray for that with you and, and to hope that he will do that. But if you're simply waiting for everything to be fixed, you may end up waiting forever. And yet if you're waiting for God, he promises to make it right. And truthfully, I really wish I had better answers than that. I wish I had something easier to say, and, and so does Habakkuk, I'm convinced. And next week, God, God, he does show up again in chapter 2, and you know what? He doesn't make it all okay. He doesn't just fix everything, and yet he promises a day when it will be made right, when his kingdom will come and his will be done. Philip, Philip Yancey, for example, and in, his, in his latest book on suffering, the one that I mentioned a moment ago, um, he writes, faith, I've concluded, means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. And Christianity doesn't offer a perfect explanation for pain and injustice. I mean, sure, it gives, us, it gives us words to voice our complaints, but we need more than that, don't we? And for Habakkuk, I mean, he'd wait a really long time. I mean, even in his immediate story, right, he would wait a long time after the destruction of his people, probably even before, uh, he probably didn't even live long enough to see God's immediate response to the problems that he was experiencing. And honestly, it was even longer, right, 600 years before what he was truly waiting for would come, that God himself in flesh would show up. And while we, we don't have all the answers, we do have something that I'm convinced nobody else has. We have a God who isn't immune to his own perplexing ways. Because we may not like that God allows injustice or suffering to accomplish a plan we don't understand. And yet our God also allowed that, that same injustice to be turned against himself. In fact, honestly, that, that he suffered the greatest injustice in the history of the world, right? The only innocent person who's ever lived crucified by bloodthirsty people. That he, that he gave his life willingly. And we, we certainly don't like how silent or distant or absent he can feel. And yet God himself, Jesus, hanging on the cross, he cried out to his father, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? We have a God who knows what it feels like. Who, know, who knows what that, that absence, that distant feels like. Who, who knows what it's like to lose a child or, or to lose a, a friend. To face his own death and to, to, to suffer brutally at the hands of others. And in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor who was executed in the concentration camp, as he, as he looked at his world in 1940s Germany, he cried out, only, only a suffering God can help. When you, when you look at a world this broken, lives this messed up, only a suffering God can help. Does that make it all okay? Does that answer every question? Of course not. And yet Jesus suffered the abandonment of God so that we never have to. And I, and I realize for some of you that you feel that. You feel that God is distant. You feel like he's left you in whatever it is you're dealing with or he's just abandoned this world altogether. And yet if you are a follower of Christ, the one thing it cannot be is his absence. Because Jesus was abandoned so that we never have to be. And whatever injustice you experience, whatever injustice you feel, and, and you feel the, the weight of life's unfairness, and, and yet, because Jesus suffered injustice, we, we know that that story 
that doesn't define us. That it will not have the last word. Even, even my death will not have the last word because he conquered that. He died and rose again victorious for us. And he promises, maybe not now, maybe not in the way that we want him to and the timing that we would like, but he promises to make it right. And so yes, we cry out, God, aren't, aren't you better than this? But again, in the words of, of Philip Yancey, because of Jesus, we have the assurance that whatever disturbs us disturbs God more. Whatever grief we feel, God feels more. And whatever we long for, God longs for more. And so yes, our God is better than this. Pray with me. God, how long? How long will you allow cancer to ravage young bodies? How long will you sit and watch as we watch our families torn apart by pornography, selfishness, divorce, where, where children are abandoned by their parents? How long will greed and complacency dominate we who are wealthy? while poverty and disease destroy those who are poor? How long will depression and mental illness run free? And how long will we feel so alone? How long will young families long for a child and you give them none? How long will parents watch their children destroy themselves while other children are abused by their parents, while still others get sick and die? God, how long? How many more school shootings, God? How many more terrorist attacks? How many more of the unborn destroyed and gang violence and wars? How many more young girls sold into slavery? And how many more men will succumb to such evil? And how many more of your people have to die at the hands of the wicked? How long? How long will we battle with the sin that lives in our hearts, that continues to to seem to overcome us? How long will we agonize with those that we long to care for and help but have no words to say? How long? Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for you for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? And God, I can't imagine an answer that would possibly satisfy us. Only that you promise to be near us, to never abandon us, that, that in Jesus you know how we feel, even in ways that we can't possibly understand, and, and that because of the suffering he faced, you promise to make it right. So God, make it right. And help us to believe that you haven't given up that you haven't abandoned us, that you are continuing to pursue us, continuing to show your love for us, that it isn't all for nothing. God, help us to trust. Help us to believe that you are good and that you are good to us. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Why don't you stand with me as we do that? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.